Welcome to Engelberg Center Live, a collection of audio from events held by the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU Law. On today's episode, Engelberg Center Fellow and CUNY Law Professor Sarah Lambden discusses her new book, Data Cartels, with MarketWatch Enterprise reporter Shoshana Wodinski. It was recorded on November 10th, 2022. So hi, everyone. Um, thank you all so much for coming to this fun time book party. Um, I have a few thank yous before I introduce Shoshana Wodinski, who I'm so excited is with us today. Um, so first, I want to thank everyone at the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at the NYU School of Law right here for putting on or for putting the fun in fun time book party. Uh, I often say that data cartels are the friends I made along the way, and everybody in the Engelberts is part of that sentiment. Michael and Katrina, thank you for creating such a vibrant community of scholars and practitioners. And also, thank you, Library Futures, who's now affiliated with Engelberg, for A, being awesome and amazing, but B, also making these relic don't do it shirts. It's a librarian in joke. If you don't get it yet, after you read the book, you'll get it. However, if you want your own relics don't do it shirt, Library Futures is not only um, making these for the book launch, but it's also part of a fundraiser for library futures and for library causes. So um, yeah, find either me or Jenny afterwards. Yeah, Jenny. And um, you can, you can, you too. And they're not really, they're not really crop tops. My child, yeah, made that. So the, the real version is, is longer. <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah. And I, I also want to thank my home institution, Sorensen Center for International Peace and Justice at CUNY School of Law, yay, CUNY. Um, yeah, Camille and Arpita, uh, the work you do to make our school a hub of public interest in human rights activities enriches all of our work and you are awesome, so thank you. Um, and I also wanna thank all the students who work on topics in data cartels, including the Intellectual Property and Entertainment Law Society here at the law school and Rights Over Tech here at NYU, so thank you all, yay. Um, and uh, now I'm going to introduce Shoshana. So when Michael and Camille and I started talking about this event, uh, they asked me if I could choose anyone to be in conversation with who it would be. And that person, I didn't even have to like pause. It was Shoshana Wodinski. Um, when I set out to learn about how Lexus worked, there wasn't a lot of information out there because uh, Lexus's contracts um, and work are notoriously opaque. And there aren't any transparency laws that can force information about how they work into the public. So I depended on the work of a few journalists who were able to shine a light into the murky, weird world of data analytics companies. Shoshana's work was critically important to this book and to everything that's come since. And her work provides clear, detailed glimpses into how these companies operate. And most importantly, her writing also manages to be super entertaining and funny. It is hilarious, um, which makes it a joy to read because data analytics by themselves, this might be a shock, they're not very interesting. Um, so yeah, making data analytics delightful is a major skill that Joshana possesses. So I'm thrilled to be here today with MarketWatch investigative reporter Shoshana Wodinski. Her work explores ad tech and data use on major platforms from how TikTok ranks its creators to Meta's ad tech empire. She once tracked a targeted butt pajama ad to its creepy source, which is a great piece of journalism. I encourage you all to check out. 
So before Shoshana arrived at Market Watch, she reported on platforms and privacy for Gizmodo. And she's also the mom to two adorable cats. And I'll briefly introduce myself. My name's Sarah Lambden. I am the mom to two adorable children and also two adorable dogs. One of the dogs is more adorable than the other, but both my children are equally and in, in, in infinitely adorable. Um, I'm also, so I'm a longtime law librarian and a newer law professor at the City University of New York at CUNY. And um, I'm really excited to be here today to talk about data cartels. I'm really excited. Oh. Sorry, I just wanted, oh God, is this, is this thing working? Uh, by the way, spoiler alert, if you're wondering where that uh, sexy butt pajama ad came from, it turns out it was China. Uh, anyway, this is a great book. Y'all are in for a treat, I just have to say. Um, I read everything except the last chapter because I didn't want to be spoiled and we're going to figure it out on stage tonight <laughs> in real time. Uh, so just to kind of kick things off, you know, uh, I began privacy reporting kind of in the wake of Cambridge Analytica. That kind of happened late 2018. And in the years since we've seen privacy reporting kind of, I don't want to say mutate, mutate is the wrong word, but it's changed shape. Now we're not just talking about cops surveilling protesters. We're also talking about companies like, like Relics. And, and the way that they kind of fit into things. So why did you wanna, why do you think things are changing? And why did you wanna write this now of all times? Well, there's no time like the present to talk about all the problems that Elsevier and LexisNexis bring into our information ecosystem. No, but really like it was, it was kind of, I think we're all coming to a point, like I think the reason it's like the idea of privacy and how we think about privacy is mutating is because we're realizing, I'm, bar I'm borrowing your word. Um, it's, it's, it's morphing at the same time we're realizing how deep the problem goes, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's easy to look at police surveillance and be like, oh, well, that's not the best. And we see some problems with that. But then when you start to trace the lines from police surveillance back to the companies that kind of supply the data and do all the work that to make it possible, like fuel the data, um, analytics, build the data analytics, you see that it's all kind of smoke and mirrors. And also it is really problematic. And I don't think like the way I came to this was actually, um, I didn't, I didn't intentionally set out to write about relics. Um, but I organically figured out that relics was a problem. Um, should I tell this? Should I do this story? I'll do this story. I feel like I do this story also. <laughs> I was a librarian at CUNY School of Law, just doing my librarian things. My desk had, I was saying this earlier, like, like my desk had like Westlaw stress balls on it. You know, I had my Lexus tote. I was, I was, you know, a librarian, uh, like we all are. Well, not all of us, but those of us who are librarians, we are all librarians. But, um, so yeah, I was, I was just doing my librarian stuff and some, I don't remember how I found it, but there was an article about the companies vying to build ICE's extreme vetting program. So Donald Trump had just passed an executive order, I guess sometime before it passed an executive order or issued an executive order, sorry, um, that directed ICE to start building like an, a very intensive data surveillance program and infrastructure. And uh, some reporters FOIA'd 
a list of companies that attended their investor day. So an investor day is a day basically where companies interested in getting in on this work go in and they learn about how they can be involved, right? How they can make money and work with ICE or whatever agency. So um, on the list of attendees in ICE's investor day for the extreme vetting program, there were representatives from both Lexus, Nexus, and Thomson Reuters. Thomson Reuters is the parent company for um, Westlaw. And here I am like sitting in my office, just like with piles of printouts of like Westlaw Lexus cases and my little stress balls and decoration, you know, my Westlaw rep like sitting outside doing their office hours. And I was like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> what exactly is Westlaw? Like, what are these companies doing with ice? Cause this was also in 2017 when there was a, ice was always in the news for, you know, kind of getting, getting a lot of attention for human rights violating activities. So um, I, I wanted to know more, I guess. So I wrote an, uh, an innocent blog post for the American Association of Law Libraries with Yasmin Sokar Harker. Um, what? Who I'm totally embarrassing right now. Um, so I, we wrote a blog post and we, we, we didn't, like it wasn't an offensive, it wasn't especially incendiary. Uh, it wasn't, it was just like, hey, this seems weird. Should we like law librarians, should we care about this? And they posted it on the American Association of Law Libraries blog. And within two minutes, the association took the blog post down and said, this is censored um, like by the advice of counsel or something or at the advice of counsel. And we were like, wait, or it's, this is be this has been removed. And I said, wait, this is censorship. Um, like librarians are kind of censoring us right now, I guess. And I was so annoyed by that, I guess, that I started digging um, to by myself to figure out exactly what was going on. Um, and I started asking our Lexus and Westlaw reps, like, hey, what's going on? And they couldn't really explain to me what they what what these companies were doing with ICE. So I started researching myself and reading work like Shoshana's work. And I realized that, yeah, <laughs> this is the you can, bad. Yeah, you can track the underwear ad to China. You can track Lexus Nexus to ICE surveillance and Thomson Reuters Westlaw to ICE surveillance. And I also like in doing that, I also realized because I didn't even know that LexisNexis was under the same corporate umbrella as Elsevier. Like I did, that wasn't even a thing that was common knowledge, I don't think at the time. So I decided that it was such a big topic um, and we like I should write a book so that librarians and other, you know, and people like you, everybody would know about how this, these two companies work. Wow. <laughs> you know. You know, I kind of joked earlier that like I it, it is kind of the story about like how you got radicalized against this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I went well, no. from being like a law librarian. Yeah. Because it's funny because like, you know, there's always people that are like, oh, like, why should I care about privacy? Why is it an issue? And you present this really kind of strong case for like right at the start of the book, you're like, I loved data analytics companies. I like use their product. I had their stress balls. Do you still have their stress balls? No, I okay. don't have their stress <laughs> balls anymore, guys. None. Okay, good. And then you learn this like one fact about them and suddenly everything starts to unravel. And the more you pick it apart, it's just like the more, the more different it is. And suddenly by the end, like at the end, you suddenly realize like the companies that you've been dealing with for years are nothing like what you uh, signed up to work with, which is uh, typically what happens in this space. But, uh, you know, I, I have to ask also again, uh, 
when we talk about these sorts of companies, uh, companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, TikTok, those are tech companies. Uh, Relics is not a tech company. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, that's a really great question. So that was kind of one of the other things that really surprised me because when I was a librarian, I thought of Elsevier and LexisNexis as publishers. Publisher, like when you walk into a law library, all the books on the shelves are West Publication or their LexisNexis, Bender, what have you. Elsevier, you think of journals. But what I learned really quickly, and honestly, this was one of the things that prompted me to write the book is they've both reframed themselves as data analytics companies. All of the publishers, Relics and Thomson Reuters, no longer call themselves publishers. And they've even changed their like market description of who they are from media services aka publishing to um, data products and business solutions, which is data analytics. So they're not even doing the same publishing business that they used to specialize in. So there's, is, so you're saying there's kind of like a straight line between, hey, we're a product that like we, we partner with like lawyers and librarians. And suddenly it's like, no, we mostly partner with banks now. It's, it's, it's kind of a straight line. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't know, like what I observed as a librarian, which I realized might be slanted because I only have this one per perception is it was tough going for publishers when things started becoming digitized and we kind of went online, right? Like we we weren't buying two two copies of all of the you know constitution like our sorry all of the U.S. code and we like weren't buying we used to buy all every law review bound in paper we weren't doing that anymore right and we probably weren't also weren't buying all the Elsevier journals in paper um some and so paper publishing their traditional business model and their traditional business fair was suffering but they realized that going that there were new markets and new opportunities in digital I data, it, uh, data analytics data analytics right yeah. so they they went online <laughs> exactly and I think it was I don't know if you see it this way but I feel like it was this gradual move so first they figured out how to make fun data platforms so informational platforms like Westlaw and Lexus where they're like oh this is cool you can link you can like link all the statutes inside this case and then you know like we hyperlinking is cool and organizing data by database is cool and it like you, it really did kind of morph, like it, mut it mutated. They're like, yeah. wait, we could also take this data and put it together this way. And it like turned into data analytics. Admittedly, I've got like cosmic horror stuff on the brain because I've been watching a bunch of movies lately, but we could talk about that later. Uh, so you're saying it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, uh, the frog in a boiling pot of water thing. Like it didn't happen all at once. It was suddenly like they rolled out one platform and another platform and another and another. And they suddenly realized like, oh, everyone needs data and there's some industries that are willing to pay a lot way more money than libraries are and that that's just that's just kind of how it worked <laughs> yeah and it's interesting because I do I think it was um Amanda Lewandowski like it was like librarians warned us or librarians told us this would happen she posted something like that earlier this week that I I liked a lot but we could have told you librarians noticed like maybe 15 years ago that our vendor relations started kind of going downhill, right? Like vendors used to really cater to us and give us all sorts of like freebies and really be like, they were with us. They had like special library relations vendors who were like our buddies, right? And that's really changed a lot. And I, I, I initially thought some of it was like, because of 2008, there was a market crash and they kind of changed their business model. But what I really do think happened is they realized, oh, we can make a lot more money from like, ice and cops and insurance companies. And they just, now it's like, I always describe it. Like we used to be in the front of the line of people they cared about. 
now we've been like shuffled all the way to the back. What's funny is that you actually, you do see this in the advert because I cover the digital advertising industry mostly. And like, you definitely see that too, where you have these companies that were collected that like would like offer app analytics. To, so like app creators could like offer free apps to make money. And suddenly they realize, wait, there's a ton of data here and no real rules governing this. I'm going to make a quick buck. And, you know, to 2022, here we are, cops buy this sort of data to like surveil people. So it is kind of funny how these two kind of disparate industries kind of met in the middle because money was there. Yes, because that is where the new pot of money was. It's, yeah. And like, you know, uh, I was planning, I was planning on asking this later, but sometimes the, the data that they buy, the data these companies collect, and they collect so much of it from so many different, you know what, really quick. Where does Relics get its data from? <laughs> Relics claims, and Thompson Reuters both claim that they get their data from t over 10,000 unique sources. There is no listing of those sources anywhere. Um, you, you can't know. Have you tried asking really nice? <laughs> <laughs> We've tried. Bring, bring your kids. We both tried asking really nice. And then also FOIAing all of the agencies that have contracts with Westlaw and, or with uh, LexisNexis and Thompson Reuters. And the only thing that we've learned from those FOIA requests about this part of the question is that not only will they not tell us, the LexisNexis puts non-disclosure agreements into its contracts with ICE that prohibit ICE from even talking about how they work with LexisNexis, which I don't even think is, like according to FOIA laws, I don't understand even exactly how that works unless you're using like some sort of national security loophole um, or exemption. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they they are not only are they not allowed to tell us what the 10,000 sources are, they aren't even allowed to say that they do work with LexisNexis. Okay. Now I know what you're all thinking in the audience here. You're probably thinking, oh, there's 10,000 different sources of data. They have a ton of data on me, my parents, my grandma's neighbor's friend. That data is probably going to be super accurate because there's so much of it. Yes. You know that a fire hose of unvetted data is always super accurate. Yeah, no, and I, th so the, actually the story about how LexisNexis and Thompson Reuters got into this business, I feel like is telling and interesting. There's actually um, another reporter named um, Mackenzie Funk who's writing a whole book. Yeah, he's writing a whole book about Hank Asher. Oh, yeah, I know, right? So cool, okay. Okay, Hank Asher is the grandfather of data fusion. And he was basically this guy who's like a reformed drug smuggler. Like he- We've all been there. Yeah, he, he used to, he like- flew helicopter. He had a very exciting, like movie fight, movie style lifestyle. And then he got caught and he started working with the government. And then he realized that he could buy people's data from like DMVs and from other kind of public offices, uh, for pretty cheap. Like it was, it, he, he saw it as like untapped real estate. Like there's all this data out there that these government offices are collecting about us. And you can just buy it. Like for a few hundred bucks, you can just get it. So he started buying it. And then he also figured out how to connect together databases and how to fuse the data and then how to kind of do like the first data analytics operation. He would connect a bunch of servers together and like figure out how to mix and match the data to make, to pull up new data and to make readily identifiable data. And um, this, he, he created a program. His, 
he and everybody who does, I don't know if you feel this too, but everybody who does government data surveillance work always says it's because of human trafficking. Yep. And that they're trying to protect <laughs> children and prevent. So his quest to protect children involved collecting, buying all of our data from government offices that he could get and running these systems. And he would sell these databases to police that would help like it, only if you have a part of somebody's name or a part of social security, somebody's social security number, or only if you had their license plate number, you could kind of mix and match that data and it would pull up the person's name, right? And that was very helpful to law enforcement. So he started making money off of that. And then after 9-11, um, the White House was desperate to figure out a way to surveil Muslim communities, right? And to figure out, you know, how to track people. So they invited him to the White House and I believe they offered him like $8 million for his services. And then shortly after that, I feel like within the same few years, he sold the entire operation to LexisNexis. And then when he did that, the FTC intervened and said, yo, you, you, this will make you a monopoly um, for, I think they called it like government records data services or something, some market that they, they made up the name for. And they forced LexisNexis to divest some of their product to, and the product was called ChoicePoint. So they forced LexisNexis to divest some of ChoicePoint to, um, to Thomson Reuters. The part of ChoicePoint that they forced Thomson Reuters to divest is called Clear. Today, Thomson Reuters surveillance products are called Clear. It's the same. It, it all is sourced from Hank Asher's Choice Point, which then was purchased by LexisNexis and shared with Thomson Reuters, and it set them up to be a duopoly. That's how duopolies work. Uh, that was a fun little lesson. I do like. I do like that this guy went from being kind of like a professional drug smuggler to being in charge of government records data services. Yes, it was quite <laughs> quite the transformation. He's very enterprising. Like I think. That's probably what, that's why I wanted yeah, to he's, he's a regular like, entrepreneur, much like me. many drug smugglers. <laughs> yes, he had a business. Uh, but I, but uh, enough about drugs. I do want to talk to you kind of about, you know, when we talk about records, when we talk about data, your book makes a very clear distinction. The subtitle is the, these companies that control, the companies that control and monopolize our information, not data. So what's the difference? Yeah. So it was, that was the first kind of needle I had to thread because information is different than data. Raw data is unstructured. So raw data is like Shoshana, Sarah, um, D'Agostino Hall, right? Just little bits kind of, I think of them as like ephemeral, like pieces of dust just floating in the air. Um, and information is structured, right? Information is if you take that data and you say, hey, Shoshana and Sarah are going to have a conversation at D'Agostino Hall at NYU, right? That, that is information. It conveys a, a message and it takes all the pieces of data, puts them in order, right? So these companies, they, they are cross-market monopolists. They have tons of informational troves, right? They have the biggest academic journals in the world. They have all the Elsevier journals. They have the entire corpus of U.S. law, right? <laughs> they have Nexus, Lexus, Nexus is one of the largest news archives on, in the world and it's updated regularly. So they have all the news and that's all information, right? Somebody had to put all that stuff together. They also have kind of, I wrote a chapter about financial information because that's semi-structured. They have all of the, they have like all the things that Edgar filings have um, and they can strip that information down to points of data about 
corporations and what corporations are doing. And they can use that to make market predictions, et cetera. So they also have kind of Bloomberg-like services that deal with financial information. Um, so I, we call, we've started calling it double dipping. They can first make money by selling data, right? By being data cartels and selling raw it's data. It's called alternative data in the field. Oh, I'm when sorry. It's sold to banks. Yeah. And now that, what do they call data lakes? Data lakes they, full of alternative data. We're going to be here all night. Anyway, just. <laughs> yeah. So these data lakes, but then they also have these huge troves of information assets, right? So they have, they, they have Westlaw and Lexus. They have Elsevier and they have all this financial information and they have all this news information. So they can sell the raw data. They can sell the structured data. They can sell platforms that kind of organize the, the information or structured data. And then they can also break these informational resources, the science journals, the, the legal, you know, the legal documents, um, and the financial information in the news, they can break that down to data too, right? They can break it up into pieces. Who authored this paper? What is the topic of this paper? What is this news article about? Whose names are in this news, right? And they can break that down and kind of strip it back down to data, you know, strip, strip the information for parts and make new informational products like academic metrics that tell you whose who's academic research is going to be the most important and most lucrative, right? They are making now predictive legal products that predict if you go before a certain judge, what are they going to think of this argument, right? And they will even model language for your filings. Now you have to be wealthy enough to be able to afford these litigation analytics products, but now you can kind of game the law with their data products. That just reminds me of like uh, the last story I did for Gizmodo was uh, right after the kind of Dobbs stuff happened. And it was about uh, LiveRamp, which is this commercial data broker that doesn't work, doesn't typically work with banks or with libraries. It typically works with like brands and advertisers. And I found that through its own massive platform, you had about two dozen companies selling data that they said was from pregnant people. And when we, and it, it included like the number like, hey, this company's selling this many pregnant people, this company's selling that. And when we tallied it up, I think my editor was just like, this number is like literally like two thirds of the people on earth that can't be right. And <laughs> yeah, exactly because, and eventually like later on, I have, I talked to uh, some guy that was working in this industry later and he's like, oh, you know what they probably did? They probably just took like women that were seen here and people that bought like this specific type of vitamin here. And they just mash that together and put a new name on it because in the kind of retail industry, they don't, it doesn't really matter. Uh, a certain amount of like advertising spend always kind of like vanishes into thin air anyway. But I also feel like, you know, we're also seeing that with cops, which is kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah. That's why, so I do, I make this distinction and I, I actually thought of you when I made the distinction because I know, well, you're like, the it's, so, it's so good. I've never heard it expressed like this before. You're like my ad tech expert. You're my go-to, but ad, so ad tech, is bad. We don't want to be creeped on when we're shopping. We don't want to be weird. Don't targeted. you want to see targeted ads? I want to see my butt flap pajamas if I'm in the right category. Don't you want those Nikes in your Instagram feed? No. Don't you want that creepy sensation where after you like read something about Hawaii, all of a sudden your computer's trying to sell you trips to Hawaii. Um, I mean, sometimes it's helpful, like more like this, everybody, not every, I don't want to be universal or generalized, but a lot of people like the more like this option, right? Oh, I like this book a lot. I might also like this book, right mm -hmm. there. I, 
I get it. <laughs> I get, I get why it's caught on. Yeah. And ad supported services do keep the internet. Well, they keep most of the internet free. They are the reason that I got my uh, job, my old job where I got to write that privacy story. Uh, and then people were in the comments saying like, you're writing about how targeted advertising is bad, but your story is littered with targeted ads. Are you a hypocrite? And I was just like, uh, abusive systems, uh, people at the end of the pipeline don't really have power over them, yada, yada. And that is an argument that I've been having for basically since I started my career. Anyway. Yeah. No. Me. And so this whole world, this is a whole other, and you should listen. Shoshana's done a bunch of interviews and like podcasts and other things where she really, you dig into the, the ad tech world. Um, but so the thing about Rel remember relics and Thomson Reuters, they're not ad tech. They're like risk services. Yeah. So that's like that. Yeah. That's like banks, libraries, law schools, insurance companies, healthcare systems, basically. But but they're not like Experian, which is like, like a credit. What? (laughs) Yeah. So they get to say, even though they do the same work that our credit, um, a credit broker, like a credit, credit, credit broker credit. I'm totally forgetting. I I, I don't know. I always just call Experian that company. Yeah. So Uh, that they're not, they've separated themselves. They've distinguished themselves from those companies because those companies are subject to certain disclosure laws and limitations. <laughs> and LexisNexis and Thompson Reuters have magically managed to create the illusion that they're very different than those companies. So they can, they don't even have like the- it so well. <laughs> yeah, like they're not even subject to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. I think that's the, I know it's FCRA. I think that's the, I'm very bad at F-E-R-C? acting. My students no? know that. Um is she right? Am I right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Woo! Look at me getting that, that acronym right on the spot prepared. I can do it, but yeah. So they're not even subject to those laws because they've, they've managed to skirt them by avoiding la- being labeled as, um, the kind of company that makes as, credit as reports. A credit bureau. A credit yeah. Bureau credit bureau. Word. That's where, yeah, they, they've managed to avoid being labeled a credit bureau, even though they do the exact same work that credit bureaus do. Um, they've also managed to skirt Fourth Amendment laws by, um, or Fourth Amendment obligations by uh, being third parties that can just slide into uh, the third party exception for uh, warrant requirements. And they, they really, they're, they're these slippery companies that by magically being, being publishers when it's convenient, being information companies when it's convenient, they can also be data brokers that skirt the rules that some data brokers are required to follow. If you had to explain to your kids sitting in the audience right now what the phrase information company means, do you think you could? <laughs> oh, that's really, I don't know. And I, and sometimes <laughs> I even call, like, sometimes I call information content because I know that's what people understand. That's, it's content, you know, the content. The kids, the, the, kids, the kids understand that more. Exactly, right. It is, like, because there are people who make content and they're, yeah, right. Exactly. And then you could be like, okay, well, there's content analytics. And then you go into it and then you watch the light kind of fade from their eyes. Well, that's why your reporting is important. (laughs) Everything is content. You sitting there, your content. I'm sorry. It's it's, it's kind of by virtue of being alive. Uh, but and you're also a content creator by oh, virtue of being alive, whether you do it on purpose or not. Yeah, exactly. But, the, but your, your book is not about that. These companies are very, very much not in the business of content or influencing or advertising or anything like that. They're in the business of offering data or offering, you know, they're in the data, they're in the, they're in the, uh, business of predicting a yep. lot of what they do is predicting. That's exactly. They're in the business of predictive analytics. And also I call it risk ranking. They sell their product, they call their products. So all of these products give themselves like vague, gauzy 
phrase names that really hide what they do. So they call themselves business solutions. They call themselves risk services. What's a business solution? Exactly. What is it? What is a business solution? They're solving your business for you. Is that like HR, like <laughs> your HR department? Exactly. Right. So these, the, you don't really know what they do. And I think when somebody says business, oh, Relics is a business solutions company. It does exactly what you want it to do. Your eyes glaze over and you're like, oh, cool. And then you just move on. Right. But if they told you what they were really doing, that would be such awful PR that they would never say, oh, well, what we do is we scrape and collect tons and tons of your data, run it through these, these analytics systems that we build, these algorithms that we build. And then we sell, we sell information about how risky you are to insurance companies. So we rank you by how likely you are to commit fraud or to commit a crime or to default on a loan or to use opioids. That's one. Um, so we, we have made all these magic predictive systems that predict all of these different things. And then we sell that information about you to your insurer, your doctor, your landlord, your employer, anyone who wants to buy it, which is so comforting. That's a lot. <laughs> so much. That's a lot. That's a lot. I, I, I honestly got to say, but like, you mentioned, like, I think, I think, I think you mentioned in the books that like these companies, sometimes cops or landlords or employers know that the data that they're buying is compiled from a ton of disparate sources that might not be actually correct. I think you mentioned like a, a cop that had some sort of access to uh, Lexus for a little while. And then they found out that it, they were like marking people as like, they should be sent to prison, even though they had already served jail time or like they were acquitted or something like that. And the cop was just like, I can't wait to get access to my tool again. <laughs> wait till I get my Lexus Lumen back. Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, so I saw that. I'm yeah. just like, is this guy like, what, what is wrong with this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, that, yeah, a lot of questions about no, how the thing is. Yeah, 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 exactly. But like, what, what do you think, what do you think it is? Do you think they're just, do you think, uh, do you think that not only uh, just institutions of power, so police, yeah. major brands, people with the capital to kind of afford these sorts of things, do you think they've gotten used to having access to them and they've just kind of accepted the same way advertisers have that like, okay, sure. This product like might mark a few people as like at risk for op opioids, even though like they, they aren't, but I'll just like take that risk. Yeah. And well, I think, so one thing we talk about a lot in administrative law for any of you who have, who are in my class, um, is we talk about kind of the focus and the government's willing, um, and every institution's willingness to strive for efficiency, right? bureaucratic administrative efficiency. We want systems that are fast, that are affordable, more affordable than hiring actual humans to do this work and dig through these piles of information and that are efficient and effective. And even when this information is, is erroneous or biased or totally messed up, it sure is fast. It sure is easy. So the product that you're talking about with the police, Lexus, it was, yeah, yeah it's called LexisNexis Lumen. And it's still, it still is called LexisNexis Lumen. I don't want you to think this product one way, but I think what it did. So what my understanding of what it did is it has like a huge database of jail booking photos. So when people are arrested and you take their photo, and then what it does is if you're on the street, if you're a law enforcement officer, you're on the street, you can take your phone. You can literally click a picture of someone and then it'll run that picture through the entire system, just on your phone immediately. Like when you're out in the field and you can immediately be like, oh, that person looks has, you know, a bench warrant or has a criminal record. And a lot of, the, so a lot of times when people are arrested, 
they actually didn't commit any crime, right? So these jailbooking photos are incorrect, erroneous a lot of the time, right? So my book, one of the things that I realized in my book and researching for it is the world of data analytics is just littered of examples of how erroneous data and biased algorithms just like ruin people's lives. There, there's a story in my book, a guy from Texas couldn't get housing because AlexisNexis database listed him as an eviction risk because there had been like a bad, like he, he once had gone to housing court or something and he had been marked as somebody who had been like evicted um, and he could not get housing because the landlord screening um, system that used Lexus data marked, marked him as a problem. Um, there are people who have been locked out of their own banking accounts because people with the same name as them have had their own banking problems. Their names get mashed together in one file. And all of a sudden a person who's completely separate from the other person can't get insurance access, can't get into their own bank accounts. Yeah. it's Well, sure, well surely the solution is just to collect more data. And okay. make the product more precise. Well, every fix for a technological problem is more tech. We all know. This just reminds me, I was talking to somebody earlier this week about like, I, I, I used to live really close to a car dealership and I would always like walk by it, like on my way to work. And I would always, I don't have a driver's license, but I would always get car ads because I was labeled as in market for a car because the advertisers saw, oh, you're walking by a dealership, obviously you're in market for a Volvo. And now years later, I still get a lot of car ads. It will, it will haunt me for the rest of my life, just the same way these products will haunt these people. But like, in my case, it's, oh no, a Volvo ad with them. It's uh they, they can't get a house. Yeah, exactly. That's so one thing I say, but like what, that's my main differentiation between ad tech and what LexisNexis and Reed Elsevier or what Reed Elsevier, LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters do. What they do can like totally ruin your life in a way that advertisement probably won't. Although cops do buy advertising data. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. They also use it to bypass the fourth amendment. And you have, you have to think that with the 10,000 sources, like yeah, 10,000, it's all the data, all the data. There's no data set that's like left out of the 10,000 plus sources that these companies get. I will just say this. In my first job, I was covering uh, Palantir, you know, that company that we all know and love, uh, because I had heard a rumor that they were kind of trying to work with advertisers uh, instead of cops. And I reached out to one major brand and they were just like, they charged way too much money when we could just like go to like the data brokers we've been using since like 1995. Like what you should have seen some of these numbers is what they essentially is what they essentially said. And that just kind of gave me a picture because like advertisers are used to spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars on like a single data product. And I could, I guess uh, Palantir was asking for a government contract. Exactly. <laughs> that government contract money is where the, where the, like that, that's where the money's at. Um, and I think that's why, you know, Reed Elsevier, LexisNexis and Thompson Reuters, like that's a savvy move to start to stop thinking so much about libraries and thinking much more about government surveillance contracts and, and, and contracts with major hospital systems and major insurance um, insurance uh, providers and, you know, these big institutions that are used to just shelling out a lot more money than marketing. Right, exactly. But when we talk about, you know, the court system, our hospitals, our like social security systems, uh, I was kind of joking with you earlier that like uh, I... That, 
I kind of, I, I have, I have a lot of friends that are in like kind of like the techno anarchist scene, uh, but I've never aligned myself with them because I always believe you should pull the kids out of, out, out of the, out of the school before you like launch a missile at it. Uh, but like, it's, it's literally this case because you have these deeply ingrained infrastructures that if you, if you just say like, oh, this is illegal, like you snap your fingers and you pull it out, your hospital will collapse. So we're, we're in kind of a pickle. <laughs> yeah, we've become so great. And actually because of Engelberg Center and because there were, there were experts who were so kind to read my book before it went in the world and give me feedback, um, somebody uh, kind of turned my attention to this, this like old kind of um, steel baron, oil baron era um, analogy comparing these big monopolists to octopuses. I, I'm into cosmic horror. So yes, so, go yeah. on. So there are these big corporate octopuses, right? And they, they are octopi. They dig, octopuses. They, they, <laughs> octopuses, right? The first one. they dig their, they, they put their tentacles around, you know, multiple information markets, but they also dig their tentacles so deeply into government and they become so intertwined with government that it's almost impossible to disentangle them, right? They just become embedded. And in fact, we were talking yesterday in class, somebody was talking about election databases and how creepy they are. And I said, and that's one of the reasons you likely will have a really hard time getting data broker legislation. Our legislators depend so much to on, get elected yeah, on personal <laughs> data to get to win elections. I remember, oh God, what is that company? G GP Van? Like the, the, uh, I, I always forget what it's called, but the, 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 the company that works with uh, election campaigns to like basically give them voter data, uh, I tried covering them. It, that was the first story that I did, I, that I was trying to do for Gizmodo at, uh, when in 2020, when I was first hired, I never finished it because I'm just like, there's too much here. It is too complicated. Like, like you said, the, the, the tentacles were wrapped around too tightly. And I'm just like, if I write this, it'll just be depressing because it's just like, this is how our country has always operated. Yeah. Well, not always, because you mentioned my favorite guy, Bill Clinton. <laughs> well, well, no, well, no, 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 because like whenever I see like kind of like antitrust or like privacy issues, I always like mentally, I'm just like, I bet I can trace this back to the Clinton administration. And usually I can. So I'm glad that you also. <laughs> I also trace this whole thing back to the Clinton administration. So, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so can you kind of explain like how the 90s caused the mess we're in today? So I will, I will frame this by saying there's, there's a scholar who I, I don't know personally, but I, I depended a lot on, on um, this one concept that they discuss. Megleta Jones discussed this idea of technological exceptionalism. So this idea that we somehow, we cat, we tend to categorize new technologies as so exceptional that we can't regulate them. We can't regulate them because we don't want to slow them down because they're doing so many amazing things in the world. And we also can't regulate them because they're too complicated, right? So I think that um, <laughs> rather than, and also, I mean, because we're in the US and we are, capitalism loves to, to capital, right? We're doing our thing that- um, Free market's going to market. Yeah. So in 1996, when it became clear that there was going to be like, satellite radio and satellite television and that the internet was going to become kind of this part of our lives. The, the Clinton administration saw it suitable and appropriate to kind of break down all the walls that were separating all the types of media. So there had been all these protective rules in place that kind of limited the scope and size of different types of information sources, digital information sources. And 
I mean, I guess a digital, it like limited the size of television, radio, like. Right, right, exactly. Like, well, like what kind of like, I, I was born in 92. What kind of like digital information was there out there? You had your radio, you had your TVs, you had brand new computers. Brand new computers. Brand new computers. And then like you had whatever the government was using. And then you, I think that's it. Yeah. And remember, I mean, I, I was, I was a teenager, um, in, uh, in the early nineties. And remember at that time, what was it like? It was, it was different. So the first, I was, I'm of the era that the first time I saw someone talking on a cell phone, I thought they were talking to themselves. Like, I was like, what is that? What is that? That person's walking down the street and talking like I didn't, but the internet for us was, you know, hooked up to the, I would, I would literally, I would go to my neighbor's house to use the internet and we would sit there and we would listen to those, you know, beeps, the little beep, ding, ding, ding. And we'd be so excited. And then like 20 minutes later, a picture of a cat will have, would have, you know, downloaded onto my screen or onto her screen. It yes, would be so exciting. Great. Yeah. We weren't that interconnected, but I think by like the, the late nineties, we kind of realized that maybe we could be. And so instead of thinking about the best way to kind of determine who would control that and to make sure that there were like a plurality of people controlling this brand new communication source and these brand new things. We just decided, no, let the market do its thing. And then everything like consolidated and rolled into these big, gigantic information barons. Yeah. It really became like a game of like first capture because whoever got, whoever got to a certain kind of circle first, like Lexus just. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I discuss in my book a lot. So one of the reasons that Relics, Reed Elsevier, Lexus, Nexus, and Thompson Reuters have been able to get such a stronghold is remember, well, I, I guess I, this is explained in my book. I didn't say it out loud. It's a good point. Um, all, all of these companies. So these Reed, Reed was a major news company and magazine company. Elsevier, the biggest journal company and academic information company in the world. Lexus owned the entire corpus of American law. Nexus owned all the news archives and also had like a lot of other research structure. And they had this stuff in the seventies, right? I think Reed was around before the seventies and the Elsevier has been around since like the 1800s. It was named after this, I think Dutch scholar named Elsevier. And he, he was known for publishing Galileo's work. Like that's how old these, that's how much of a stronghold these companies have. So they predated the internet by so much that when it was time to move things into the digital world, they already had all these archives of information that they could just LexisNexis was the first um, legal information company to digitize the law and, and Thomson like Westlaw, which was later, you know, consumed by Thomson Reuters had more American law than any other company. So they started from a place of monopoly or duopoly, you know. What's funny is that I'm, I'm thinking about it now because, you know, uh, the modern kind of like digital publishing world, like online newspapers, they kind of work the same way where like over time they've had to more, they've had to mutate from just being a place where like you go to read the latest news to a place that's actively profiting off of you or trying to, and because it doesn't really have a choice, that's the way digital economies work. And I I feel like there's just like this like push, like there's, there's, there's like cosmic horror again there's something there's something about the world technology technology that just pushes people to kind of the most profitable solution even if it isn't really the one people necessarily want right uh and then it's it just the the machine just kind of moves on its own (laughs) well and i mean remember i was this is true of all tech platforms but if you are a publicly traded company and you have shareholders 
you have to increase your profits all the time. You always have to be looking at new venues for profit. Oh yeah. Venture capital is, has a lot to do. You keep, you keep, you know, the only way you can grow is by expanding, by getting into the health data sector, getting, you know, into a new type of government contract, learning how to datafy and make predictions about child welfare services and other, you know, you're always trying to branch into new markets because you're always trying to increase your profit. Right. And, and like at that, at that point, like, you know, you, because you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the book, the information that these platforms had, that's what you thought was valuable. But to them, it's not really about information as much as it is the people that use it. Uh, yeah, same, yep, yeah, same thing, same thing with digital publishing. They sell audiences based on who's going to read this article? What type of person visits uh, something like, I don't know, the Washington Post or uh, the Chicago Times? Uh, and if the right person doesn't visit, then they just don't get paid that day. Uh, it's more complicated than that, but we're talking about this book. Uh, <laughs> uh, there were a few other questions that I did want to ask you if that's okay. <laughs> we have a little bit more time. Uh, at the end of the book, this is the chapter that I didn't read. Uh, you say that you mention potential fixes here because thanks to uh, sort of the loosening of the reins that happened in the 90s, the government really hasn't been able to it, grab hold of these companies since. They've been kind of slipping through all of these laws and all of these regulations. And when they, and when they try to regulate them better, it's state by state so they can just slip through it a different way it's read the book but <laughs> what can we do about this i'm well, scared so yeah there's i so one of the problems like one of the i i was lucky to be reading to be writing like the problematizing book and not as much the uh solution finding book because the solution finding book is i've tried it and it's hard it's so hard um the one thing i have learned because i think when I talk about this problem, a lot of people are like, well, what we need is a law like there's this bill out there, like the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, or we need to do copyright reform. We, we need, need HIPAA to-, to actually apply to websites and apps and not just like health insurance brokers. Exactly. We need to we need to close close loopholes in our existing privacy laws and expand other loopholes. Right. Very obvious. And the thing is, is like, because those aren't competing ideas. It's like they all, yeah, you're right. Yeah, HIPAA, yeah, copyright, yeah, antitrust. Like we need to not have, we not need to not have our main academic information platform also being run by our main government data broker. Like that's not good. Um, so we need to do all of those things. It's, it has to be a multifaceted approach. Like there, yeah, we need to make sure that you have to get a warrant before you use these in a, you know, before a state actor uses these, um, or not uses these, before a state actor, um, you know, seizes and looks through your data stores. Um, you need to uh, fix loopholes in copyright law that allow for- Yeah, but why though? It's so much more, more profitable ownership. not to fix that. Exactly. <laughs> and these, and like these companies pour- um, they're real. These companies are really profitable like, and they pour a ton of money into <laughs> lobbying, right? They're just, I, I, the reason, I mean, the main reason I wrote this book is I wanted you to know that relics and Thomson Reuters should be considered along with Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. Like they're gigantic multi-billion dollar data analytics tech companies, and they are lobbying hard against any sort of, any sort of governance or regulation. 
uh, I will say this, you know, for a long time, I was kind of, because in my side of the world, I was really kind of like bummed. I'm just like, oh, regulators are never going to like get a hold of this. I'm going, I, I, I always kind of like half jokingly said that like, I didn't expect privacy regulation to meaningfully change within my lifetime. Uh, <laughs> well, Right now, in uh, there's a lawsuit going on against Google led by uh, the, the 40 state AGs. You, you, you know about this. Uh, it's an antitrust case based on Google's uh, role in the online ads market, where the company is very anti-competitive and has been for a long time, but nobody's been able to prove it under current laws. So the lawsuit kind of like flips it a little bit and they use kind of a stock market analogy and they're basically like, oh, Google rigged the stock market. And then lawmakers were like, oh, we get it now. We can sue that. So the fact that like when I saw that that was filed, I'm not going to lie, I teared up a little bit because I was like, oh, they finally get it. <laughs> and that kind of gives me hope, you know. I will say like this summer, I actually testified in Congress because it was the one issue that both sides of the aisle we're concerned about and could agree on what was the issue like, the data privacy and and date like they were they ev everybody for completely different reasons that were utterly fascinating to listen to everybody cares about data being used in government surveillance on both sides of the aisle everybody for totally opposing reasons that are just fascinating everybody cares about it and they think that that is actually a type of legislation i even heard last week like when we were kind of doing the run-up to the elections this week, um, people were talking about how data privacy might be a bipartisan issue. What? I don't know. I don't know what that will say at all about anyone, but it's interesting to think about. Okay. Well, it's about time. Uh, that does it for me. Is there anything you wanted to ask me? Well, I think, yeah, I think. Ne I yeah. want to do this oh, again next week. Does anybody have, yeah. <laughs> have questions? Oh. Yeah. You can yell. Second. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, I'm an LLM student actually here at NYU at Antitrust. And what you were saying about how Lexis and Thomson Reuters have evolved from traditional publishers to data brokers to risk analysis, this fascinates me from the relevant market definition from from the antitrust perspective. So I'm wondering how much are we, the FTC, but also potentially class plaintiffs, going to rely on how the companies self-identify and how will the court consider this self-identification and self-labeling? I would personally be more inclined to take a broad market definition, um, no matter how controversial it may be in quotes at this, this point in time, because these companies, well, on the one hand, they can compete with publishers, but on the other hand, um, maybe we can prove even with a broader market definition that they are extremely monopolists. So uh, I think I think in this case, it doesn't matter how narrow or broad you are in the market definition because it's just them. But I was wondering how would you solve the dilemma in the designation and market definition given these companies' evolution over time? That's such a good question. It's actually one that I got to work on this year with Spark, if any, especially library people. Spark is doing awesome work around privacy and around um, antitrust work. Um, and so one thing that we did, all we would write reports. So these companies are always consolidating, right? And every time there's a consolidation, we would, and it took, it's funny how long it sometimes took us, we would 
rephrased what the market was. We would, so like the companies call their, the companies call their academic, it's data analytics of academic, academics data. They call it impact factor, right? So we're like, no, 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 that's data analytics in the academic, you know, information and academic data market. And so we would write entire reports to the FTC again and again and again, trying to try wait, what did they say in um, Mean Girls trying to make that, make it happen? Fet- yeah, we make it fetch. We kept yeah. trying to make it happen because uh, we really, you really, it is uh, so much of it is a matter of reframing what these companies call themselves and what they claim to do versus what they really do. Did we ever figure out if Facebook is a platform or a publisher? Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Or, you know, it kind of gets even to net neutrality. What's a common carrier? Yeah. It's these, these phrases matter from a legal standpoint. So, yeah. Hi. Uh, so nice to see you both. Eileen Clancy. So I haven't met either of you in person. Hi. Hi. Twitter, Twitter. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're I'm just big fans. Um, so, and I just love to promote both of their work, both of their work. So I just have one little question. I haven't read the book yet. One little question, uh, Sarah, you mentioned the third party exception for warrant requirements, just to kind of go right into the law enforcement stuff. So can you say a little bit more about that? You said, I think Thompson Mortars um, somehow manages to get around that and anything you could talk about that? Or- yeah, so it's it's an open secret and I'll admit I'm not a con law person. I'm like, I'm an admin law person and a librarian, but I, 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 I am familiar with this area because when you get into Reed Elsevier's and, and Thompson Mortars work, you, you can't not be. Um, but yeah, there's, it's, it's this open secret that one of the reasons that entities like ICE and entities like law enforcement agencies, you know, local, state, and federal like to use data brokers is not just because it's efficient and easy, but because since it is a third party, this information, so instead of taking our information, these law enforcement agencies are simply buying subscriptions to streaming services or to, you know, to information platforms, and that allows them to skirt Warrant obligations. I wanted to find out stuff about me, and I have committed no crimes. I'm not associating with anyone at all with crime. I, it's the pandemic. I don't see anybody. No. Asked. They could just buy really information. don't they wouldn't agree to that somebody out there is paying somebody a twitter to look into people's dms not me but some you know what i mean and and that's happening as we had with saudi and and so forth so so all this just the fact that all this is out there and what they do instead of going to a judge um even though they also use administrative warrants in new york city to do this um and and they also just are pals with verizon they really can just ask them for stuff yeah right anyway so yeah, so they do that. So just the fact of, of of collecting all this stuff via ad tech is just deleterious, I think, to all of us. Yeah, and to the point that they are that they're friends, there is a clear revolving door between law enforcement um, and these entities. If you look, if you look at who runs the risk services for both of these companies, they've all worked in in major law enforcement capacity and ICE capacity, um, and at one point, the head of 
LexisNexis's risk services was also on the ICE Foundation, which is a not, it's a, it's like a charity and support organization. There's an ICE, ICE Foundation? Yeah, for the people of ICE. Oh, I want a t-shirt. Exactly. They buy the cakes. I don't know. They bring the napkins. Yeah. Um, hi, Sarah. Um, hi, Shoshana. Um, hi. hi. Nice shirt. Thank you. Um, Sarah, if you hadn't said that you testified in front of Congress, I would have started my question with, well, did you know that Sarah testified in front of Congress? I did not know I was like, um, but I, my, but my question is, uh, the book focuses a lot on how bad this data is. There's a sort of example after example of how bad this data is. And you know, there have been a lot, actually a lot of books about how bad this data is. And as many of us feel that we live in a, in a world of eroding, declining trust in government and news and financial institutions, while actually living in a world of sort of greater, what feels like it's being advertised to us as like greater security of this data, right? Particularly for financial institutions, while still seeing, you know, recently Thomson Reuters just was involved in a 300 million data record data leak. And everybody knows about Experian, that company. So this is this is a question of trust as well. And I'm wondering, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is the difference in trust in government, because these are government data brokers versus, you know, everybody thinks that Facebook is creepy and it's a private company. And so, you know, you might not trust Facebook, but and that's okay, but you, you kind of should trust your government, right? You should trust your news. And so I'm wondering how you feel that these companies um, contribute to the erosion of trust in the public and to, to the erosion of public trust more generally? That's a really good question. No, I was about to say, can I do a quick, can I do a quick rant about KYC? Know, know your customer software that banks use. Uh, all right, so uh, banks are very, very afraid of fraud. They're terrified of it. And as a way to kind of get around that, you have companies like Experian or Equifax that roll out these very fancy proprietary solutions meant to, supposedly detect fraudulent, uh, like fraudulent logins, fraudulent calls, fraudulent everything. So uh, when you make a call to a bank and you, if you hear kind of like a little, like this call might be recorded, that call is being recorded. And <laughs> because they're, because they're doing vocal biometrics to figure out whether you are really you based on your phone number. Which is why whenever I, I get asked a lot, you know, is are companies like Facebook and Google like, yeah, 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 like listening in on my phone. I'm like, no, that would be really kind of complicated. But banks and hospitals and these large kind of federal entities love doing that. And obviously they have very good reason to, but it doesn't really help. <laughs> and it creeps you out. Like, I think that that's, I think that the more we talk and publicize like stuff like that, and then, yeah, well, yeah it's yeah, exactly. Like, here's the thing. Like, I bet nobody in the audience probably knew what KYC was because it sounds like a brand of like sex jelly. Like, like, like there, you know, I always say, and you mentioned this also in your book, uh, you quote me, uh, you know, this stuff, this stuff is so like information platforms, like risk analysis conglomerate. It, it just, it sounds that doesn't sound scary. That sounds like something that like your dad uses. But the fact that we're just like, no, that also means that they're like recording your voice when you call the bank. Suddenly you're just like, wait, what? And then you kind of, right now I think the issue, these companies are still too boring. We have to like figure out how to like break through that initial layer. 
which is why I try to be as funny as possible. <laughs> yeah, you the the quote that I took from you is purposefully dull. They go they out are. of their way to make this sound as boring as possible because they want your eyes to glaze over and you to not notice what they're doing. I used to work for my first job was actually at a magazine that was aimed at ad tech professionals. I was writing about the Death Star mechanics for people working on the Death Star. Uh, and you would think that I would just be like horrified every day, but initially I wasn't, I'm like, this stuff is weird and kind of like dull, but like, there were like a lot of like big words and kind of concepts I didn't understand. And then about two weeks in, it finally hit me and I just sat at my desk and I was like, oh my God, all these weird kind of amorphous privacy concepts actually have words and like terminology attached to them. And I felt like I was like seeing I, I felt like I was like seeing through the internet. Uh, it was a weird, weird experience. Uh, highly recommend reading trade journals if you want to get into this stuff. That sounds thrilling. Yeah. For sure. it's, it, it, it's, it's really boring until it isn't. <laughs> no, you're going to do, it's going to be great. Amazing. Yeah, um, that's a, that's a really good final question. That keeps yeah. me up at night. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the first thing that you have to do is like graduate law school and then get out there, right? And like go convince them because uh, I think that that makes a huge difference, right? You all um, make a huge difference. Like librarians pushing, lawyers pushing, law students pushing, it all makes a difference. Like I'll say, um, Lexus, for my very personal, like, you know, my little corner of the world, Lexus Nexus couldn't care less that me, a librarian was not happy with their product. They knew they had me. They knew I would use their product forever. Anyway, they knew I would teach their product for eternity, right. Until, until I retire. Um, but they got really, really upset when students started complaining and stopped using their product. They, that was the first I ever heard from them. And then suddenly they wanted to talk to my boss and have meetings with me. Like suddenly they cared. And it was because their student metrics started sliding and their students started, you know, saying, Hey, we don't like what you're doing. Um, so you have your own set of power at, like librarians have their own power to, you know, deal with them through the, the contracts and deal with kind of deciding what types of information sources to even provide and how to provide them. And then students, you're their future consumers on, you know, no matter, no matter whether you're a law student or a, a student using, you know, academic, other academic sources, you're their, you're their customer base. I'm just a go-between like nobody, nobody cared about what I was doing. Um, but they certainly care about what you're doing. And I also think really we have to stop being technological exceptionists when it comes to, um, when it comes to, so we've done it, we did it in the past with, you know, the printing press, the automobile. I have these examples, the bicycle, the bicycle, right? Like nobody wanted to regulate it. We, we talked about this yesterday in class because we were reading the state farm case, right? They, when we went to um, try to make cars safer, when Congress said, Hey, can you make cars safer, safer. Um, and uh, we, we, um, well, the guy, I wasn't me. I wasn't, I wasn't there, but I think it was what the N and the national highway safety. Yeah. The NSA NHSTA. Um, National High National Safety Highway Transportation Administration. That agency. Anyway, that agency. They 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 tried to, you know, push um their their solution was like, oh, we've heard that these seat belts and airbags 
super, super helpful for making cars safer. And the, the automobile industry was like, no, we could never, we won't be able to build cars. That's going to be so expensive. We can't do it. And so for years, we went back and forth over whether the car, the auto industry would be able to function if we had seatbelts in cars, like, or whether it would be just too hard. It's too hard to put seatbelts in cars, right? Um, and now we see that when we pushed, when we pushed the auto industry to do it, and we said, no, you have to do this, they all did it. And now we all have seatbelts and airbags and cars like, look, they did it. Yay. Um, and we can do the same thing for the tech, tech industry. We can say, hey, you have to do this, but you have to follow these privacy protocols. You have to encrypt. You have to, you know, you have to minimize and you have to. You have to ask data. for gosh dang consent. Yeah. I'm pretty sure your data. Like, the smartest, and it can't just be, I agree, right? As a, as a qualification for getting onto a platform. Like there, there, there can be meaningful safeguards put in place um, that, that balance both, um, the, the, you know, the industry's continued growth, but also our needs. Right. And that is possible. And you got, you, you, Harshi, you are going to push for it. Right. Cause yeah, you all are going to push for it. <laughs> uh, I do want to say this though, because it can be really tough to talk about, uh, privacy. I, I have a lot of experience doing this. So I've, I've failed a lot and I've kind of come up with my own way. Uh, when I talk about privacy with folks that maybe are new to the field or kind of want to get into it or don't know why the app spying on them makes them feel crummy, but it does, uh, I like to talk about choice because every privacy violation is a violation of choice. And if you kind of frame it like that, I wasn't, this company did not give me the chance to say no every time it becomes it becomes a lot easier to talk about at least in my experience so yeah you can present it like that to your local librarian or professor or grandma's friend's neighbor's cousin thank you all the engelberg center live podcast is a production of the engelberg center on innovation law and policy at nyu law and is released under a creative commons attribution 4.0 international license our theme music is by jessica batke and is licensed under a creative commons attribution 4.0 international license